Mark chapter 4. Jesus said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces corn. First the stalk, then the ear, then the full kernel in the ear. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you can plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jacqueline. So, good morning. Today's uh, Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you all. I wonder what I've done wrong when I've discovered that Father's Day, all of my children are in a different country. <laughs> thanks, Ben. You're such an encouragement. <laughs> so I've got uh, one in, in New York on holiday, one travelling in Thailand for five weeks, and then the one that's normally in Australia is in Thailand as well. So it's, uh, it's great. I've had a text from a couple of them. We'll wait to see about the one in New York when she wakes up later on. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we look into it and look at what you have to say to us this morning, pray that you would help us to hear from you. Amen. So if I were to ask you this morning about what your favourite things to do were, what would you say? For me, it may be skiing off a, a tall white mountain, um, or possibly watching Shrewsbury play at Wembley, although that's probably not enjoyable, more torturous. <laughs> maybe you have similar things, or possibly maybe something a little bit unexpected. As we look at these parables this morning and explore what the kingdom of God is like, we'll discover that it probably isn't what we expected. So Jesus says, what's the kingdom of God like? It's like a farmer who throws his seed out onto a field and then just walks away. Now, I may be married to a farmer's daughter, but I know very little about farming. However, even I know that you don't just walk away from what you've planted. I was talking to a friend this week who's a landscape gardener, and we were discussing some aspects of his work, and he was telling me of some of his uh, customers who call him, him in to try and resurrect a dying rose bush. He asks them what they've done to look after it, and very often the answer comes back, nothing. He then explains to them that the rose needs feeding and nurturing, just like humans. 
And the fact that I don't really understand that as well probably explains why my efforts at gardening are ultimately doomed to failure. However, Jesus seems to be saying just this. The farmer walks away from the seeds that he's thrown into his field. He sleeps and he gets up. Days come and days go. Somehow, as verse 28 tells us, the crop grows by itself. In Greek, the word is automate. It's probably pronounced different from that in Greek. But, um, and it's the word from which we get automatic. Automatically, mysteriously, without any apparent outside assistance, the seed grows into a large harvest. What's the point here? Surely Jesus isn't trying to encourage inactivity on our part. We don't walk away from this parable singing, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, do we? Just because the word, word automatic is used, that does not mean that we're called to do nothing to advance the kingdom. It's a parable that points to the surprising mystery of an unexpected kingdom. Now, Jesus chose to teach in parables because he could get across some of the mysteries of the kingdom in ways that his listeners may relate to. Yet still, 2,000 years later, we sometimes puzzle over exactly what he was getting at. The New Testament commentator and theologian, Tom Wright, likens uh, learning to read Jesus' parables to listening to a choir. He describes the difficulty of an untrained ear, one a bit like mine, of hearing the individual notes that make up the chord we hear the choir sing. Likewise, as we read these parables, we can all see that sort of surface meaning, the superficial meaning of it, the secret growth of a seed, or the small seed that produces a big bush. But can we see the individual notes that go to make up these chords. I expect that the first hearers had similar struggles to us as well. That's why Mark says that he explained everything to his disciples in secret. It wasn't that Jesus was being deliberately difficult or obtuse just for the sake of it. It was that the message of the kingdom that he was bringing was so explosive and so countercultural that this was the only way he could say it. J. John said that there are three reasons why Jesus uses parables. Firstly, they allow indirect confrontation. In most traditional societies, there's a great deal of sensitivity to shame and honour. And our modern preferred method of getting straight to the point is just too abrupt. In, su in such societies, parables are common even today. They're common as a way of saying unpopular things in a way that won't inflict public shame. For example, if, if I as a manager had a member of staff who was constantly late, I'd probably call them into my office and explain to them that regular lateness was not acceptable and let them know what might happen to them if we continued in the same vein. A Middle Eastern boss might tell a story about how once some late arriving employee had his salary cut. The person targeted by the story would recognise the warning. Likewise with Jesus, rather than directly attack the self-righteous Pharisees 
at least this early on in his ministry, he would tell stories of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the lost son. Secondly, parables gave some protection of ambiguity. Because they have an indirect means of communicating, they can provide a way of making a challenging statement without stirring up too much trouble. This was particularly useful when he was talking about the kingdom of God. After all, that was a dangerous topic, and Jesus had many enemies. Let's think about the second of today's parables, the parable of the mustard seed. If that was rephrased into a, a statement like, for instance, the kingdom of God will grow until it extends over the whole world and the Gentiles are part of it. If that was the case, if that was what Jesus had said, hearing it like that would have scandalised the religious authorities of the time and the Romans would have been alarmed. However, expressed as a parable, it was different. Those who had tuned in to what Jesus was saying would have understood what was meant. Anyone else would have found it just too enigmatic. The final reason that Jesus used parables was because they separated the real seekers from those who were merely curious. Jesus was seeking people who would be prepared to be his disciples. He was looking for commitment, not curiosity. Parables act as a great filtering mechanism for his audience. They would have produced one of two reactions. Some would have heard the stories and then just walked away, feeling no more than entertained or possibly slightly puzzled. Others would have found themselves compelled and intrigued by what they heard and might have sought out Jesus afterwards saying, teacher, I've been thinking about what you said. Does this really mean this? So if you look back to that, that first parable that uh, Jacqueline read for us, what does Jesus want us to hear? What notes can we hear in this chord? A story about the seed growing automatically in secret. It's so simple that it can appear innocuous. The seed grows secretly, doing its own thing, completely unobserved in the earth. And eventually the stalk appears, then the ear of corn, and then the corn swelling inside the ear. Next, of course, comes the harvest. All of that seems straightforward. It's what was going on in that time, year after year. But if we look carefully, we can hear those two notes that give this parable its revolutionary undertone. If we go to the end, as soon as the corn is ripe, he puts a sickle to it, because the harvest has come. And that quotation echoes the prophet Joel near the end of uh, his book in the Old Testament, a book that's all about the coming days of the Lord, the time when after terrible devastation has been borne by God's people, he will restore their fortunes and pour out his spirit upon them and reap a harvest of judgment against the nations around them. It would have been a vision of the coming days that many of Jesus' contemporaries would have been cherishing and looking forward to. Jesus is telling them that God's promised moment is indeed coming. But it's not going to look the way they were expecting it to look. God is not simply vindicating Israel and condemning those outside. 
When judgment comes, it will look rather different. But come it will. It'll be unexpected. This unexpected view of the kingdom was brought home to me in a small way when I was in LA with Tim recently. On the Sunday, we were due to visit a church not far from Hollywood. We put the address into the sat-nav and followed the very lovely lady's instructions, only making her tell us to turn around when possible, just once. Um, I'd missed the exit on the freeway somehow or other. I do sometimes quite enjoy her exasperated tone at that point, though. But when we eventually arrived at the address, we were very confused. We were in the middle of a very run-down part of the city and the sort of industrial area. And we found the building and, and peered in and eventually saw someone sort of moving around there, so we walked in. There was no obvious sign of it being a church. It was just a converted carpet warehouse. Now, whenever I think about the church in the United States, I think of professional slick productions with robed choirs and effervescent pastors. And uh, maybe I've been watching too many movies, I don't know. But this was completely different. The chairs, that's a photo of the, the chairs in the building, were all sorts of shapes and sizes. The band was practicing and the leader was checking the PA, setting up the projector and preparing some of the prayer stations. The complete opposite of the sort of organized church that certainly I was expecting. It was the chairs that sort of spoke to me most. They were all individual. They were all different, as you can see. They weren't uniformly in rows, with every single one the same. In the same way, the kingdom of God accepts each one of us as an individual, with all of our quirks and foibles. And this sort of vision of God seeing us as individuals really hammered home through that, those pictures of those chairs. This was for us an unexpected view of church. And hopefully this is, helps us see this unexpected view of God's kingdom. The other note that helps to explain the difference is in the apparently innocent description of how the seed starts to germinate and grow. The farmer, Jesus says, goes to bed and gets up, goes to bed and gets up, night and day, day and night, but still doesn't know how the seed sprouts and grows. The answer, of course, is that the seed is doing exactly what the man is doing. It's sleeping in the soil and then getting up. This is how God's present creation works. Night and day, seed time and harvest, the cycle of day and year mirroring one another within God's preordained order that he laid out in Genesis. But what's the significance of this within the coming of the kingdom? The answer, I think, is the seed is laid in the earth and then arises. The word that's used for get up is one of the words that also means resurrection. At this stage in Jewish thinking, the resurrection wasn't about how individuals would find life after death. It was about how God would dramatically restore Israel's fortunes even raising the prophets of old to share in the blessing. This parable then is about the fact that although Jesus' ministry in Galilee doesn't look like the sort of kingdom of God movement people were expecting, it was in fact the seed time for God's long-promised and long-awaited harvest. People wouldn't be able to see how God's promised plant would grow from this seed 
but grow it would and harvest would come. The story, I think, is a, a bit of a warning against looking down on small beginnings, the small beginnings of Jesus' Galilean ministry and of the, then the great work that, that was to happen. The small beginnings that we sometimes see in a realisation of vocation, in two or three people meeting to pray and plan, that often today herald the start of some great new initiative that God has in mind. The second parable, too, briefly, has a couple of notes inside it. The first one comes in the question Jesus asks, and that we ask today. What shall we say God's kingdom is like? What picture shall we give of it? In one of the best-known passages in the Jewish Bible, in Isaiah 40, the prophet asks a very similar question about God. To what will you liken God, he says, or what likeness compares with him? It's not just an accidental echo. The passage is all about God coming to rescue his people, coming to restore Israel after a time of devastation. Israel mustn't think her God is incapable or powerless on a level with the pagan idols that promised much and did nothing. So here, nobody should look at Jesus in Galilee, surrounded by a local crowd, and say, how can this possibly be the beginning of the kingdom of God? The mustard seed is the smallest at the start, but in the end it grows into a large shrub. That's Jesus' picture of what God's way of working, God's way of growing the kingdom is like. At the end, it will be a royal kingdom, like those spoken of in the Jewish scriptures. The other echo, the other note in this chord, comes at the end of the story. The birds of the air make their nests in its shade. Both Ezekiel and Daniel use a similar image of a great kingdom growing like a tree until those around can shelter under it. Don't worry, Jesus is saying. Remember who your God is and what he's promised. Just realise that this small beginning is a start of God's intended kingdom, the kingdom that will eventually offer to shade the whole world. So we've discovered that this kingdom of God won't look like we're expecting. The kingdom has small beginnings, but it will be a royal kingdom, and it will eventually offer to shade to the whole world. Jesus' hearers, of course, probably knew their scriptures better than most of us do. They might be able to have picked out the notes in the chord and at least begin to make sense of it all. Last week, Laura reminded us that we all hunger for the kingdom of God, whether we realise it or not. The challenge for us as readers of Jesus' parables in a very different world is to think what we have to do to be kingdom workers, to be kingdom explainers in our own cultures. We were also reminded last week that the kingdom of God is within us. Let's find fresh chords to strike so that we can enlarge our vision of the kingdom and so that our friends and neighbours will be teased into picking out the notes of that kingdom and perhaps even joining in the song. Amen.